the whole aspect of cultivating yourself as a human being is something that derives from classic Chinese work like Confucianism and Taoism. Confucius wrote about how shooting the bow can cultivate you as a human being and make you a better human being. You transform the bow in, from a tool of war into a tool of peace because it cultivates you as a human being, makes you a better human being, basically. The first two times I went for fourth dan, I simply wanted it too much and I expected to pass. I really did. So there was a bit of arrogance involved. But after doing it a few times, eventually you start not putting so much into it emotionally. I mean, if you expect to pass because you think you kind of deserve it, then I think you will never pass. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Tokskai Inside Look podcast. Today we're speaking with Nikolai Siklau from Copenhagen, Denmark. Nikolai has been training Kudo for over 16 years, during which time he founded the Danish Kudo Federation and has nurtured the growth of young Kudoka, including last year's European champion. Nikolai holds the rank of Yondan and trained primarily under Liam O'Brien Sensei in the UK until his passing in 2015. In this wide-ranging conversation, we talk about Nikolai's practical and philosophical interests in Kudo, the patience and persistence of starting a Kudo community in his home country, and finding the perspectives necessary to succeed in this mentally demanding martial art. Many useful concepts around tensions in the Budo arts was brought up in this conversation that I believe are valuable to practitioners regardless of the art. The balance of desire to hitting a target, shame in demonstrating poor technique, and jutsu versus do are all concepts we struggle with, and I found Nikolai's descriptions both insightful and informative. So, without further ado, here's Nikolai Siklau. My name is uh, Nikolai Siklau, and I'm 45, and I live in Copenhagen, born and raised there. I started doing some odd jobs after high school and joined the army for a few years. Did some missions in the army in ex-Yugoslavia as a peacekeeping force. And then I went to university and got a master degree in ethnology, which is basically cultural history slash sociology. And basically, I was brought up in a, in a Budo environment. My father had a jiu-jitsu club where they trained jiu-jitsu and EI. So it was kind of always part of my upbringing. I never did go for any gradings. It was just kind of something that was in the family. Also at a very young age, I remember very clearly watching television series Shogun. I don't know if you remember that or know that from the 80s. You don't know it? No, I'm not familiar with that. <laughs> well, okay. Well, Shogun is this television series based on a real life historic event where a British sailor gets is stranded in, in Japan in the 1600s. I don't know how many episodes it is, but it's a very Japanese series. And in that series, there's this scene where a famous samurai shoots a bow and he shoots some arrows through a shoji, like a rice paper door. And he asks the, the British guy, Anjin Zan, choose the left or the right pole of your door. And he chooses the left and then he shoots like five arrows and he hits the left pole without looking at it, obviously, through this paper. And I saw that as a, as a, like a 12, 13-year-old kid and I was just like, I'm going to do that when I grow up. So that was basically how it started with Kudo. And then there was no Kudo in my country whatsoever. So it was just something that stuck with me. And then after I came home from the army and started university, then I started searching for ways to do it. And I started training for half a year with a guy who claimed to be practicing Kudo, but he was this, what they call like Bullshito guy, this made up concoction of Zen Buddhism, some self-taught stuff. And since I had a background with martial arts and Budo, I kind of got the understanding that whatever he was doing, it was definitely not Kudo. So eventually I had to travel out. I had a lot of relatives in Norway. So I went to Norway a few times to Oslo 
And then I got introduced to uh, Liam O'Brien Sensei in London. And then I traveled to, to London and started training Kudo. And that's really what set off my Kudo career. And that was 16 years ago now. When you said you were practicing at your father's dojo early on, was mm. that a serious thing in your early childhood? Or was it like you no, it was more like a play thing, actually, to be honest. And also, when you became a teenager, then it was, it was like my dad. It wasn't really very cool, to be honest. It was this teenage uh, resentment against Buddha. But the, the idea of following a path, the Michi, the door, that aspect of it, I really, I always really loved that concept, basically. So I tried Kendo also for a while, but all the screaming just put me off. I thought, this is not very harmonic or, or, or triangle. I, I can't do this yelling all the time. So I got put off from that very fast. And then this guy, Bullshito guy, he was looking for some people who wanted to start training Kudo with him. And I went along with it straight off the bat after training with him for like half a year, a year maybe, and realizing this was definitely not Kudo. I took the step of, of going abroad to be taught proper Kudo. Mm -hmm. So having been exposed to Budo early on in your life, when you joined the army, did you see any differences or similarities between how martial arts people think about the martial aspect and how when you were working as a yeah, well, armies are probably very different. I mean, at least I've worked with both French and American soldiers and British soldiers. And especially the American army is very, I don't know, strict, let's say, almost a bit fascist compared to a Scandinavian way of doing things. There's a lot more individuality in the Scandinavian settings, I think. And I, I noticed how little combat there actually was, like hand-to-hand -hand combat in, in the army, because basically we use guns. So that aspect was really, really a very, very small part of the training. And that, that surprised me, I have to admit, coming from a Budo background, or just in general, just expected to learn hand-to-hand -hand combat. But generally speaking, the bayonet was not something you use anymore. So why would you teach it? It was like a thing from the Cold War or even World War II. So yeah, that was my biggest surprise about the army. And what about the discipline aspect of it? How did you... Yeah, I guess it's more or less the same, isn't it? It is. It is basically the same. So yeah, that felt very natural in the framework that it exists. Uh, I didn't mind it. Okay. Yeah. So you came back and studied ethnology. What do you think got you interested in that? Was that something you've always had some leaning for in terms of well, culture? That, yeah, the missions I did in ex-Yugoslavia, I was in Bosnia and Kosovo, and the ethnic flares and the nationalism and this conflict where basically people who had known each other for generations suddenly turned on each other for no apparent reason. I mean, I got interested in the nationalistic aspects of that crisis, and that's why I chose to go to university and study basic na nationalism, basically. Could you talk a little bit more about what that is? And Nationalism? Yes. Well, that's basically the, historically, like in the Romantic period in the early 1800s, how you try to create a people by cultivating certain histories, stories, narratives about how this people became this great people that they are. For Americans, it would be Plymouth Rock and these kind of things, founding fathers. And for a Scandinavian, probably it's like the Viking Age, stuff like that, this overly romantic view of this warrior ethos. And for Japan, obviously, the samurai. So they are actually very similar, despite the distance between the different nations. The way you perceive these national narratives are, are very similar. When you look at Japanese culture or samurai culture, do you have that lens in comparing to other countries? Like, we know that now this art is being done all over the world. Do you think about, okay, there's these Spanish people that are doing keto. I think they see it this way, and I think Americans see it this way. 
Yeah, to some extent, but also to the point that the whole narrative of the samurai and the whole like romantic notion of how he is perceived in popular television, it has probably not very much to do with the actual samurai, just like a Western movie has very little to do with the settlers and the actual cowboys, because most people are basically actually human beings are the same. We are horrible human beings. We can be good sometimes and bad sometimes. And very few people are as black and white as, for example, samurai warriors are often portrayed. But how it's perceived in the different countries, well, I think it resonates with these martial images of, you know, whether it's Vikings or samurai or whatever you have in your, even in China, maybe it could be some kind of wushu heroes, kung fu or whatever. I think it's more or less the same, to be honest. Do you find that that's the aspect that attracts people to the martial arts? Do you think that there's this romanticized view of what history used to be and kind of tapping into that? Yeah, I mean, I think Kudo is is different, and and I think maybe some other might sound a bit snobbish, but the the older the the real Budo, so like the, the basic Budos like the Yai and Kudo, and maybe also Aikido. I think this group of of Budo ka, they seem to me, at least the people I've met, they are a bit different than the more let's say brutal street fight kind of MMA, sometimes also karate people. They seem to be a bit more philosophical about the approach. They are more into the dough aspects and less into the hitting, fighting kind of aspects. It seems to me, at least. Mm-hmm. Is this something that you've done any particular research on? Is it just your interest? Uh, no, it's just my interest. I haven't done any certified research on it. That's a very narrow field of research, I think, at least in my country. So that's not very likely to happen. But I find it very interesting to see how this pans out. The whole, these narratives we have in the Buddha world with Jutsu and Do people. How some people say, well, this is not original because this is a Gendai uh, form and it's modern, has nothing to do with real war. And then you have the other people who think that these Jutsu people are old school warriors. And I think that whole discussion is quite misunderstood because like anything in history, nothing is as black and white as that narrative. Well, that's interesting. I don't know if you want to talk a bit about that. Could you first maybe define what is Jutsu, what is Do? based on modern thinking? And then what is the common kind of misconception that you see out there? And then how would you approach? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, my area of interest obviously has been Kudo. So that's basically, that's the lens I look at things from because that's what interests me. I'm not really that interested in like Budo as a whole, but there are certain similarities, of course. And as far as the research I've done about the whole Jutsu, what we call a duality. So Jutsu is, for some people, they say, well, Jutsu technically is just technique, so Kudo is bow technique. And some people claim that this means that this is the original warrior-like way of shooting with a bow. And then Kudo is the way of the bow. And some people claim that this is a more modern concept that comes with the creation of, for example, Judo in the 1930s. And they claim that this has nothing to do with the real essence of the warrior spirit and uh, the technique used in war. And I basically, I think that as far as I can trace it back, basically it's an American thing. It starts in America with, there's this very influential guy in the 60s and 70s called Don F. Drager. Don't you familiar with him? Mm, I've heard the name. Yeah, he, he wrote a book like Asian Martial Arts and a lot about Japanese uh, arts. And when you read the things that he writes, it's basically just a lot of books with a lot of opinions in it. I mean, as a researcher, you notice immediately there's not a single reference anywhere to anything. And he's very adamant that anything that starts with Do is basically just some modern in his eyes, more or less like dancing. It has nothing to do with the martial aspects of Budo. 
So the whole idea about cultivating as a human being, cultivating yourself and, and using Budo as a way of transformation to become a, a better human being. He says that this is a modern thing. And the, the people in that camp who claim to be doing only jutsu, whether it's for kudo or kendo, kenjutsu or kyujutsu, they claim that they are somehow more authentic. What they do is older and more correct and closer to the warrior samurai ethos, if you will. And if a little bit about Japanese history in general and Chinese history in particular, well, then that is absolutely bullshit because the whole aspect of, of cultivating yourself as a human being is something that derives from the classic Chinese works of like Confucianism and Taoism. Do, the kanji used, the kanji used for Do in, in Japanese is the same as the Chinese one for Tao. So someone like Confucius is what, 500 BCE, I think. So that's like 2,500 years ago. He wrote about how shooting the bow can cultivate you as a human being and make you a better human being. There's this Chinese concept of Junsi, the gentleman, perfect gentleman, the superior human being. And one of the six noble arts you should practice to become that is archery. And that's how he writes, you transform the bow into a tool of war, from a tool of war into a tool of peace, because it cultivates you as a human being, makes you a better human being, basically. So how you can... I mean, with that knowledge that these Chinese ideas were written down more than two and a half thousand years ago, how you then can claim that this has nothing to do with the warrior ethos of Japan in the, let's say, 1500s or the warring states period is something I really don't understand. So is, is this like a, was there a clear transition period in the history of Kyudo where they used the term Kyujutsu to, and then changed it to Kyudo or? I mean, as far as, as I understand it, and then there's a lot of uncertainties in these sources, but Kyudo seems to, as a concept, at least in Kyudo, the Do aspect of Kyudo has, seems to have been used since the middle of the 1600s. Narrowly in the beginning, as far as I understand it, by a few schools like Yamatoru and Chikorinha, and then gradually it became popularized. And then obviously with Judo up in the pre-war period, it became the norm to call it Kyudo. But before that period, there was like, I don't know, six, seven or eight different names for Kyudo, from Kyujutsu to Shake to Yumi to Shachitsu to Yumi no Michi and Itedo. And so there was many, many ways of calling things more or less the same, but they all evolve around this aspect of cultivating human beings. So, so whether or not you call it actually Kyudo, the main idea behind it is more or less the same as far as I can see it anyway. So I find it very hard to find that very clear line because unfortunately history very often does not have these clear lines. Mm -hmm. So when you started studying this history and culture of, of Kudo, was that before you started the practice? Yeah, know? no, yeah, it was actually, it was before I started the practice because I, I, I couldn't practice. <laughs> I had to kind of cultivate the environment to practice it myself. So yeah, but I'm a geek and, and that's something that's really interests me. So anyway, I can't really help myself from, from diving into these sort of things. It just mm -hmm. kind of comes natural. And I just need to know what I do and I need to know what I practice and I need to understand how it evolved into the things that it evolved into after World War II, let's say, for example. Okay. When you started traveling around, you were able to find access to real Kudo to start learning. How were you able to bring that back to your home? Well... Well, a little, a little at a time. It was, it was difficult. Obviously, I had to travel to to London in the beginning, and I practiced with Liam O'Brien Sensei. Came back, did some video 
read a lot of books, read a lot of Japanese books, even though I don't, you know, read Japanese, but just gazing from pictures and whatever you could actually to do better yourself. And then traveling to seminars and traveling to London to practice with O'Brien Sensei. Yeah, just very, very gradually and very, very slowly, of course, and with a ton of mistakes. So I've probably have been the slowest learner in the history of Kyudo because that was just the only way to do it, basically. How did you develop that relationship with O'Brien Sensei? Well, it was like so many things by chance. There was, I traveled to Norway quite often and there was a group in Oslo, the capital of Norway. They were connected to O'Brien Sensei. So I talked to the chairman of the Norwegian Kyoto Federation at the time, Doc Finn, and I asked him, how do I do this? And he contacted O'Brien Sensei and talked about me basically. And then I was invited to London by O'Brien Sensei and I stayed in his house and trained with him there. That trip was purely for Kyoto? Yeah, it was. Is there any other, any other reason to travel? <laughs> I mean, that seems, most of my travel these days seems to be because of Kyoto. So that's very natural. <laughs> so it's really tough in the beginning. And I think a lot of people listening, some are in their early stages as well. So I think it'd be very helpful to hear, like, what did you have to do to first get your practice become a regular thing and then organize so that more people can do it? Well, yeah, I, I trained alone for the first many years, trying to better myself. And basically, O'Brien Sensei told me, I think you should at least have taken your first stand before you start anything up, because then you have something to show off on and you have that experience at the very least. So I did that. I, I, I trained for a few years and I was good enough. I went to Japan and passed my first stand. And then I started a club here in Copenhagen, actually, when I came home. I brought home with me three bows and three gloves, you know, spent a lot of my own money on some equipment just to start up somehow. And then gradually the, the word traveled and very slowly we built a decent living club. Wait, so you brought back equipment before there was anyone else? Yeah, yeah. But, but because basically, I mean, if you want to start up Kudo, you have to have some equipment. You can't just... I mean, you just give newcomers a guyumi. That's not very incentivizing. You need something a bit more tangible. So yeah, I, I bought three bows with me home. How many people from that original period of time when things were just starting up are still around? No one. <laughs> no one. People came and people went and it was only, oh, see, our club is 10 years old now. The first two or three years was really a struggle to kind of get things up and running. Also because we didn't have, I mean, we live in a capital city and getting a place big enough to do Kyoto actually shooting is quite difficult in a big city. So that was a challenge. And, and we have this evil circle of not being enough people to actually get like a big hall or somewhere to shoot outside. So yeah, that was a, a huge st a struggle in the beginning. So also a lot of people were put off by the fact that you, we could mainly do Makiwara training, very little actual shooting. So it required a lot of tenacity, to be honest, and stubbornness and stupidity probably also would help. So it when helps. were you able to get the long distance in that? At a certain point, we had enough members and we were able to ask the municipality to, to get a place and we got a place to practice, which was short in the beginning. I think it was 20 meters, but it was better than nothing. So um, that was a good opportunity. I mean, here, here in Denmark, at least the, the places to practice are free of charge once you have made a club that confines to the, to the law of the land. But obviously, living in the capital, it's always difficult to get a, a big piece of real estate or a hall when you're not very many people. And you have to compete with regular sports like basketball or football or handball or whatever. So after we got a, a few more members, then, then it started kind of living. And some of these members probably went with you to other countries. And then yeah, yeah, yes. there yeah, I mean, people from we, other countries coming to help as well? 
Yes, actually, yeah. We had a lot of help both from the United Kingdom and also from Norway. In the first few years, they helped us both financially and traveling over to help us would do demonstrations and train us, obviously. So yeah, we had a lot of help from like the community, both financially and, and you know, personal assistance. So that was a, a huge help. I mean, I think most people in the Kudo world understand how difficult it is to start up Kudo, at least in the beginning. So people are always very, very helpful. That's my experience. Mm-hmm. Is there anyone besides O'Brien Sensei that you want to talk about that helped you out in the early, in the beginning and then also more current day? Who, who seems to help support the Danish Kudo community? Well, well, no, basically it was O'Brien Center. We had this senpai kohai relationship and, and uh, that was the way that was supposed to be. O'Brien Center was very old school. You had to do things the, the right way, so to speak. But unfortunately, he died five years ago. And after that, I haven't really had any, let's say, primary trainer as such. It's been more loose. Yeah. And it's both a blessing and a curse to have this strong relationship with one person, because on the one hand, it's very nice to have a personal relationship. But on the other hand, you are kind of limited in a way because you have to confine to whatever this person tells you, because that's the way you do things in, in Budo, right? So, but yeah, I have a few trainers that I visit every now and again, but I wouldn't call them my senpais or my trainers or something else. It's more like a good relationship. Mm-hmm. Is the Danish Kido Federation or Association part of the IKYF. Could, could you talk about, so I think a lot of countries realize and a lot of Budo communities realize that you have to be part of this international organization before you can participate in some of the big events. Can you talk about before you were a member, what motivated you to create your federation and become a member of IKYF? And then since then, what has that helped you achieve? Well, it's always nice to have the recognition of an established organization if you want to move forward in the world with whatever other organizations there are. And yeah, first, we, we the way it works in Europe, at least in the European Kudo Federation, is that you are trial members for two years. So we were trial members for two years, and then we were under the supervision of the Norwegian Kudo Federation. And then we became full members of the European Kudo Federations after two years. And then once we got recognized by the European Kudo Federation, then we were recognized, I don't remember, maybe half a year, a year after by the International Kudo Federation. And then we had all the contacts we needed. So basically, when we were under supervision, then we had to have all our registrations for Shinsa and stuff. The Norwegians would have to sign them off for us if we wanted to go in different places. Well, obviously, it makes a difference to have a direct communication with the Japanese Federation. It makes everything much more more simple. And also it gives you access to dojos when you have a like a little a member's fee card. So yeah, it does help quite a lot, I think. When was the first time you participated in a tournament? Tournament? Actually, that was only a few years ago. No, that was the last year, actually. I've never really been a big fan of tournaments. It's not really my thing. I don't really have the urge to compete. I don't mind it. It's just not a thing. So yeah, we competed in the European Championships for the first time. The thing was always, because we didn't have access to a full range, our shooting was always quite shitty. (laughs) So we always held back on on competing in Taikais. But the last few years, we've had access to full range shooting. So we toyed with the idea and a few guys wanted to go to the European Championships. And then last year, we did that. And I also had to join because we needed some, some extra members. And then, yeah, we came in 12th place with our national team in the team competition. And a young guy, a young student of mine, had the audacity to win the whole thing. I think he was like 20, wow. 22 or something. It was mind-blowing to watch. This very, very young guy was shooting out very high-graded people. 
and just not missing the target ever. So that was a quite a big experience for us for the first time ever competing. What countries was he facing individuals? Well, the France, the French are usually some of the best in kudo. I mean, they are really, really good, really, really skilled kudos, kudo shooters. So yeah, it was a, a French guy he was up against in the end, and they just both kept hitting and hitting. In kudo, when you have a competition, it basically when you miss, you lose. So it's just hit, and then another one hit, and then they shoot two arrows each, and compete until one misses, basically. So yeah, that was quite quite an experience.、Mm-hmm. Okay, could you talk about going to Japan and training there? Yeah, well, well, basically, at the the times I've went, I went with with Ryan Sensei. So it was always usually close to a major shinsai or a seminar, and it's in these very very big venues, like the the big one in Meiji Jingo, which is like a huge dojo, ten target. No, it's actually twenty targets because there's two ten target dojos next to each other. So so. I don't think I have any really fantastic good stories from that because these events are so big that it's really hard to find your ground sometimes, to be honest.、Uh, and and Kyoto, the last few years especially, has been be becoming so big that the Japanese have problems kind of finding room for all of us. It seems, especially since the Asian countries have started joining, the, the, the seminars are getting very very big, and a lot of people are actually starting to complain a bit about it because it's quite expensive to go to these seminars, not only for the travels but also the seminars themselves. So. Yeah, you, you usually you maybe get to shoot two or four arrows in an entire day seminar, which is not ideal.、Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so there's been a lot of clamors for change in the Kyoto Federations, basically, because people are a bit disillusioned with the way things are working out now when there are so many people. What are examples of smaller seminars or events that you've been to, and are there any ones that are particularly memorable? Well, I've, I've been to many small. Usually, you have like these kind of weekend seminars,、uh, different places in Europe. I've been to seminars well, all, all over Europe, obviously. Obviously, also a lot of seminars in the United Kingdom. And yeah, and then obviously when O'Brien Sensei died, there was a seminar slash like what do you call that? It's not a wake, but like a almost a mem. I don't know what do you call that. Like death seminar sounds a bit <laughs> dark, but there was like a celebration of O'Brien Sensei's, you know, life, and and there was this ceremony you do for deceased people in Kyoto, where you darken the targets and you darken the the tsuru while you make the red part of the bowstring. You turn that black and you face a picture instead of the kamisa. So there was this very nice ceremony for the recently deceased that we took part in. It was the first time for me to try something like that. But O'Brien Sensei was a very big character, at least in European kudo, and since he also translated the kudo manual, I guess he is, generally speaking, a pretty towering presence in the kudo world outside of Japan, at least because he's more or less the only access we have to the kudo manuals. Because there are nine kudo manuals, but only one has been translated so far, so we are quite limited in our access to this information. Yeah, so that was a very that was a very strange event because. You're going to meet a lot of very good friends, but we're basically here to hold almost hold a wake with archery, and you want to do your best, and it's very hard to do your best when you're a bit, you know, in distress. So that was a very weird experience that I hope not to experience too much again. But other than that, gradings, shinsas, I was fortunate to pass my first three dance very easily. And and I think I was a bit programmed by by O'Brien said because I remember when I started training with O'Brien said he said oh you have the level like third dan so what I did was just, I just took first second and third dan like do 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 no problem and then at fourth dan I really met the the wall really big 
unsurmountable wall. And I think I tried three or four times to pass it. And it actually took, it was the year after O'Brien Sensei died. So that was being 2016. I was in Nagasaki for the Oceanic seminar there. And oh, sorry, Nagoya. And I went out with a lot of good old friends from the United Kingdom. And we were just reminiscing and getting a lot of good food and beer in this very working class kind of place where there was a lot of drinking going on. And we got quite drunk and we had a, a Shinsa the next morning. But it, it apparently it helped me to become very emotional because I was I had a hangover like you would not believe. I was really, really, really struggling to <laughs> keep myself up. So I just needed to get that Shinza over with and just go home because I felt like like really, really bad. Uh, but apparently it helped me pass my fourth then because I was very mushin. I did not think about passing at all. I was just <laughs> trying to survive the day. So <laughs> So that was a bit, it was a very Japanese experience. If you've been out with Japanese trainers, they're very often, they are really good at, at, at drinking quite heavily. So yeah, that was, that was something else. Oh yeah. Congratulations on that. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> so Yonan seems to be in a lot of other arts too, a major barrier. What do you think was yours and what do you think was necessary for you? to? I think, you know, in, in Kyoto, at least also the third Dan is the, is the, from third then and upwards, it becomes hard. I think the, the general statistics is maybe 20% of people pass the third then and a little less for the fourth then. And basically, you, well, your, your form has to be very, very good and very on point, but also your shooting, you have to hit basically. With uh, Sandan, maybe you can survive with only one hit, but with fourth then, well, your form has to be very good and you also have to hit with both arrows basically. And that's, that's difficult. In a very stressed situation, hitting with both arrows is, is, is quite a challenge. So that's why people meet that very big wall there. And also, at least for my part, the first two times I went for fourth then, I simply wanted it too much and I expected to pass. I really did. So there was a bit of arrogance involved. But after doing that's why you do it a few times. And eventually you, you start not putting so much into it, emotionally, at least you just go, well, I'm, I'm going to try and I'm going to do my best. And, and that's that. And I think that is the attitude you need. I mean, if you expect to pass because you think you cannot deserve it, then I think you will never pass. So that seems like a big lesson for you. In yes, very, <laughs> very much so. Yes, very much so. So the reason why I found you was through the Facebook page. And I noticed that you're an admin on the Kudo group. Mm. Why did you take on that responsibility? It was many, many years ago when, when Rick started it. He had a lot of trouble, problems keeping up, basically, because the group was growing. So I think I just suggested him maybe he should just add some extra admin so he could get some help and from different time zones. And then he just basically said, well, then you're it. So it was just kind of, <laughs> well, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so it was uh, just a friendly suggestion that turned into me becoming admin on uh, that forum. So that's how that happened. I don't remember how many years it was ago, but it was a few years ago. Is there anything that you learn from how people post on groups on Facebook about Kudo, that different perspectives that you found interesting? Oh, yes, uh, very much. I mean, there's a lot of really, really talented people there. I know some people look down on it a bit, but there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of really, really skilled people and people who have read a lot of very classic Kudo literature in Japanese that post there and have some very good the point ideas and notions about Kyoto that's at least for my part has been very, very educational. I've learned a lot of things from a lot of these people uh, that post in these groups. So I think it's a fantastic forum. Of course, there's all these random people who clearly have no connection with Kyoto who 
post random archery related stuff. But that's kind of part of internet live, isn't it? You can't really do anything about that. But and I think generally it's an extremely well-behaved group. There's very little need for moderation there, even though it's, I think it's plus 5,000 now. So yeah, and Budo people in general are just a bit more behaved, it seems. And also let's say Kudo is a small environment. So if you, if you act like a dickhead, you know, it gets noticed very fast because we are in most countries, a few hundred practitioners. And when you go to seminars, international seminars, everybody more or less knows each other. That also puts a, a damper on what would normally be the worst parts of the internet, I think. Are there any particular threads that you feel like you learned a lot from or other ones that where you had to do some moderation that required extra work? No, I don't think so. I mean, there's there's a lot of threads. Some, it's quite random how these things seem to pop up, but sometimes some threads are extremely educational because somebody asks a genuine question about some of the different schools, different ruha or some different aspects of teachings from these different kinds of schools. Different schools have different ways of talking about how to release or how to hold your tenuchi, the grip of the bow, or stuff like that. And sometimes it just evolves into very big and very long and very interesting, almost research quality threads. And that's a fantastic thing when that happens. But I can't think of any particular thread as such. But no, and as requiring administration, that's very one or two or three maybe that I can remember where some people start getting very touchy about criticism or maybe even threatening people. There's been one or two of those, but compared to the size of the group, it's practically nothing, I would say. And I'm sure like when you're learning stuff on those, it's kind of a little bit at a time. What are some of the things that you feel really impacted you either from a sensei senpai, from someone, I think you listed a few things. Could you talk about the source of that lesson and why it's impactful to you? Yeah, well, uh, never belittle yourself. That was something that Brian Sensei told me because I think a lot of people who do Kudo, we are very much aware of our shortcomings, I guess. But very often you say, oh, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that because I'm not good enough and this kind of thing. And, and it took somebody like him to tell me to, you know, stop doing that all the time because what I did, I had my level was perfectly fine. I, I shouldn't keep telling others or myself that I didn't have the level or I wasn't good enough to do that. So it wasn't a question of having no belief in yourself, but it's more that anybody who's done Kudo know that it's, I mean, there are so many small details in Kudo and, and we strive for perfection, well knowing that we will ever never reach anything resembling perfection. So it's, it's very easy to, to dive into that ocean of just not really wanting to represent Kudo because you don't really feel you're up for the challenge. You, you don't, you're not representative of what Kudo can be compared to, let's say, somebody who's lived in Japan and trained in a dojo every day. Because most of us who live in major cities, we can only train twice, three times a week if we're very lucky because we need access to the places to train. We can't just go up and train. And I think that that schisma sometimes is difficult for Japanese, some Japanese people to understand at least. But I think that someone like Brian Center obviously knew that the regime of training has to be different when you don't live in a place where you have a Q dojo right next door. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was what did that comes. Before from? you recognize something like that, what do you what are what's the harm? What are you seeing in people that have this feeling that belittle themselves? Well, again, I, th- I think it it comes from an honest and an honest appreciation of the art, right? You see these fantastic hanshi you're shooting fantastically and you just see them and then you reflect upon yourself and go, holy shit, I am never going to reach anything resembling that. How can I do a demonstration? I mean, that would, I would like belittle 
and dishonor the whole history of Kyoto. But you have to kind of kind of step up and, and step out of that mentality because you are whatever you are in your country. And if you are the best there is, well, then, then you are the best there is. And you have to represent and you have to walk the line, basically, right? And then have the courage to do that. And knowing well that maybe it won't be perfect, but the effort is important also in Kyoto. Just the, the pure effort of doing things, even though it's not perfect, it's, it's an important thing to just have the courage to, to step forward and just do your best, basically. So mm-hmm. that's what I, I, I took from that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about Mushin and Yushin? <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, that's something that the O'Brien Sensor always used to say. Yushin is the full heart, and Mushin, everybody who does Budo knows what Mushin is. You know, so I think I don't need to explain that. The empty mind or heart. And, and basically, some people, especially in Kyoto, I think Kyoto, we are not, we are probably the ones who are hit the worst by the whole spiritual wave of people who think that they can just lift up a Japanese bow and then magically they will just get enlightened because they've read like Sen in the Art of Archery by Herikl or something like that. And that state, the Mushin state, is something that needs hard work. I mean, if there is such a thing, and I'm sure there is, then you cannot reach it just by pretending to be spiritual. You can only do it by really, really hard work, right? So I think this was something that O'Brien Sensei himself picked up from his old sensei, Takeuchi Sensei. Uh, that was his first sensei. That you have to have yushin, you have to have the heart, the heart full of desire before you can have the heart without desire. So you had to have that drive that I want to do this and that and strive for something. And then eventually through your striving, you will come to the realization that it's not really needed, but you have to put in the effort, the training effort to somehow reach the mushin stage and that is the yushin the heart full of desire and it's a natural progression you see that in japan very often right if you see like college or high school kudo a lot of europeans very often scoff at high school kudo because they they are extremely competitive these young teenagers you know and they yell and scream whenever they hit the target and they're having a ball and i think a I appreciate that very much. And it kind of connects to that same sentence. You have to have that first. And then gradually, when these young people become older, they will search for some deeper meanings in Kyoto, hopefully, other than just hitting the target. And then they will, through Yushin, come to Mushin. So I think that's how I understand that anyway. That's cool. So I want to ask, these are called like rapid fire questions. So questions that you can answer. You can do a really long answer, a really short answer, just a group of things that I'd be interested in. So the first one, which one is your favorite stage in the Hasetsu, the eight stages of suiting? Which one of them <laughs> is your favorite and why? Wow, that's a difficult question. Well, I would have to say Kai. I'm torn between Kai and Daisan uh, because Daisan is when you really set everything up for real. And from Daisan into Kai, you basically can't really change anything if you want to have a good shot. But recently, I've been really trying to have a very long Kai to just kind of work with different techniques and different teachings and it's surprising how many different things you can do through in like five or six seconds that your Kai normally is. So yeah, Kai is the revelation, isn't it? In so many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that would be Kai, definitely. Cool. If you could meet one sensei or practitioner that you've never met before and have a day-long conversation with, regardless of language barrier, who might that be? Oh, that's a tough one. I'm tempted to say someone like uh, Awakenzo, obviously. And not because of Sen in Archie, because he's quite misunderstood in many ways. He was not a Sen Buddhist. He had his own Daisaku, the way of the big shooting. He basically tried to create like a religion out of Kyudo. 
and he had like an epiphany, much like if you do Aikido or Sensei, at one point of his life, he also had like an epiphany. But before that happened, he was a really, really strict teacher, as far as I understand the historical things I've read about him. He was a really hardcore and very strict teacher. And I would like to experience that, I think. That would be very cool. Mm. Yeah. Is there any item that you've purchased or experience that you've purchased, like say a trip that's not related to Kudo, but has helped in your Kudo practice? Huh, that's a good question. <laughs> I can't really think of anything right off the bat, I have to admit. So for example, like some people use like weights to help them with their practice or Oh, like that, like, do. oh, yeah, well, I do physical training to stay fit. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to increase my bow strength, generally speaking, because I think my strongest bone right now is 26 kilos. And I, I, I'm aiming to be able to shoot a 40 kilo bow for no for no no i've been reading a lot of old text and historical text about kudo and they sometimes tell you the 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 strength of their bows and how long they were able to to shoot arrows in these those days and that i just thought it'd be fun to try and see how far i can go how how high i can pull a bow and the problem is actually getting a a, a yumishi a bow maker to actually make strong bows because a lot of bow makers will not make bows that are stronger than 24 kilos so yeah, I, I do some weight training. And other than that, well, actually, I've recently, last few years, started to read a lot of Chinese classical texts. And I find that very helpful for my Kyudo practice, basically because Kyudo is really, really, I mean, fundamentally, Kyudo is based on Chinese classics. So not only something like Confucius and the Book of Rites, but also there's a very famous Chinese archery instructor called Gao Yin. And his texts were very, very popular in Japan in the 1600s. And actually, his texts only survived in Japan. They didn't survive in China. So I've been reading a lot of those classical Chinese archery texts. And I find that very fantastic. It's quite fantastic, actually, because you, you recognize straight away that this is Kyoto. Jesus, what? wow. And that was also kind of a, a revelation for me to see this. I mean, you always know, obviously, when you do if anything about Japanese history, that Chinese history played a large role in Japanese history. But when you read like actual technical manuals on shooting, even though the Chinese bow is quite different. It's a Manchu bow, it's a horn bow. But the techniques are very, very similar. And the, the mindset is, is obviously also similar because it's based on these Confucian values of cultivating the human being and using the body harmoniously. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Chinese archery instructions and, and weight training. Yeah. Cool. Related to stuff that's interesting or unique to you, is there anything that maybe only the, the longer term friends and people in the community that know you well would know, but that normally other people in the Kyoto world might not know about you? I don't know. Well, my interests outside of Kyoto are I, I work uh, often in, in museums and archives. So generally history is my interest. So I'm interested in, in history and, and culture on a very large scale. But no, I think the only thing that a lot of people probably don't know about me is that I was in the military for quite a few years because it's not something that's very important to me. It doesn't really play a big role in my life today. So I can't really think of anything very unique. <laughs> okay. So just to wrap this up, is there anything that you either heard from previous podcasts, any things that were brought up that you wanted to react to or share your perspective on, or even stuff that's not, you haven't heard before, but you thought it'd be interesting to share to an audience that does Kudo and some other of the traditional Japanese martial arts? Yeah, I listened to all the, the podcasts and uh, I thought it was very interesting to listen to the very young Japanese sensei you interviewed. 
because his experiences that he knew very little about the history of Kyudo is something that always surprised me when I talked to, uh, well, Japanese Kyudo people that they know very, very little about the different ryuha and schools and uh, the whole history of Kyudo. They know absolutely nothing about them. For, for most of them, it's basically just a sport like any other. And that's also very, sometimes it's very, very refreshing and nice when you come to Japan and talk to these people because they don't really have this very deep feelings about Kyudo. It's just a recreational activity that they do. And that's quite surprising when you come there and you think, well, all Japanese people must know everything there is to know about whatever Budo. But actually, most people have absolutely no clue about it whatsoever. And then maybe not even very interested in it either. Uh, so yeah, I find that quite quite interesting. And, and, and something that I've noticed myself because I've been dived so deep into the history and development of Kyoto myself. So it kind of always a bit mind-boggling to me that you have to talk to quite high-ranking people before anybody has an ounce of, of interest in the deeper aspects of Kyoto, at least when it comes to a lot of Japanese trainers and instructors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I that found that good. very funny insight that he learned more about you know the history of Kyoto in Europe than he did in, in Japan, actually. <laughs> Uh, and that's my that's the same experience I've had actually, and he was also an uh, anthropologist, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> anthropology and ethnology is very closely related sciences. So yeah, I connected very much with with him. It was very amazing that you, you know you can become was he a Renshi at twenty six? Was that it? Yeah, he's yeah. he's Rokudan now. I think <laughs> it's mental. Yeah. yeah, but you know, again, in Japan, you can go to a Shinsei every month, right? I mean, you can take a test every month. You just go to a different prefecture and just take the test again. If you're European or American, I guess also you can only do it once a year or travel to Japan. So it's quite a, a big distance between Japanese practitioners and, and us outside of Japan, isn't there? Other than that. Yeah, it was very insightful to hear both Hartman Sensei and Hoff Sensei's experience. They are both giants in, in the Kyudo world, aren't they? They have a very, very long life of martial arts in general. So it was very enlightening to hear their pioneering efforts in trying to bring Kyudo to their countries. And, you know, I relate to that to some extent, because to a large extent, I also pioneered Kyudo in my country because I brought organized Kyudo at the very least to my country. So I related quite a lot to those struggles of trying to just get the world to understand what this crazy thing Kyudo is because it is still a very small and very esoteric little community that's hard to make people understand what it really is mm-hmm. yeah well thanks to them to really get it started and thanks yeah. to you for bringing it to your country and keeping it maintained and now you're helping out online too and spreading the word so thanks for all your work and thanks for this interview thank you very much thanks have a great rest of your day bye perfect bye Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode because we have a lot more exciting conversations to share as we explore the world of the traditional Japanese martial arts. The Inside Look podcast is available on most common podcasting platforms and on YouTube. Remember to subscribe to not miss out on new interviews as they are posted. We're always looking for feedback to improve, so please write us a review or drop us a line at podcast at tokushikai.ca or on Facebook and Instagram at tokushikai.canada. Until next time, thanks for listening. Yeah. Maybe I'll see you somewhere. Do you still do Kyoto, Patrick? So I had stopped about six years ago when my daughter was born. Uh, okay. She's getting older now and uh, I might, yeah, there's, I'm starting to feel the itch again. <laughs> really? Since you're interviewing all these Kyoto people, it seems a bit. <laughs> yeah, well, so my brother never stopped when I stopped. Oh, okay. So I also have that connection there. Uh, okay. Well, yeah. maybe I'll see you in a seminar yeah. somewhere. Maybe I will.